0: Patricia Churchland, very welcome to our podcast.
1: So pleased to be here. Thank you.
0: Uh, you, you re- your your uh, recent book, Conscience, uh, looks like this in in English, and the yeah. Swedish Swedish edition is Samvete. I think I emailed you. Yeah, it's nice actually. Uh, on the on the origins of moral intuition, tell me first. What made you feel it was time to write a book about this subject? How did that idea come about?
1: Well, it's an interesting question because early on when I was thinking about neurophilosophy and how neuroscience might impact some of the philosophical questions about the mind, I really had no expectation that we would in my lifetime, come to learn things that would bear upon the nature of how it is that we have these very strong feelings about what's right and what's wrong.
2: Hmm.
1: What changed all that was I went to a talk at the Salk by Larry Young, and it had a very boring title about bowls, and, and I sort of sat there and listened. And then all of a sudden, he began to tell the story of the contrast in behavior between montane voles and prairie voles. And the story, Mm. as you probably know, is that montane voles, uh, the male and female meet, they mate, and then they go their separate ways. But prairie voles are very different. They live in large communities. The males and the females meet, they mate, and they're bonded forever. And the male helps guard the nest against other females as well as other males. He takes care of the babies. And um, they are very strongly attached to each other. Mm -hmm. The question that Larry Young wanted to ask was, what's the difference in the brains between the montane voles and the prairie voles? Because these are Mm -hmm. species that are very similar. And it turned out that the difference had to do with two very simple and rather ancient peptides, oxytocin and vasopressin. Mm. And they're receptors, that is those things on the neurons to which oxytocin or vasopressin would bind. And in very specific places in the old reward system of the brain, there is a very high density of receptors for oxytocin and in a slightly related place, a very high density of receptors for vasopressin in the prairie vole, not in the montane vole. And so then they did all the manipulations. And I, I thought, my God, if, if something like attachment and caring for another individual is to some degree regulated by oxytocin and vasopressin, then what about not just caring for your babies and for your mate, but what about caring for kin, for friends, for those in the community? And so consequently, the question in my mind was, is this result extendable to caring for others in a broader sense? And as the data came in, it turned out that it is extendable. Mm. And so that gave me a wholly new way of thinking about morality. Because previously, really, many biologists, and Richard Dawkins was a nice case in point, said mm. that, look, you know, all animals have the wiring to see to their themselves, to their own needs and desires. So if you're going to have morality as a social behavior, you're going to have to train the animals to have it. And it turns out that's just not true. And Darwin interestingly knew it was not true. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there is this powerful instinct in mammals and in birds to be social, to have these strong attachments. And, uh, And that's kind of The foundation for the behavior we think of as moral. Now, there is another part to the story, and it does have to do with learning. But the impulse to be social, to care, to do things that involve a sacrifice to oneself in order to benefit another, it's very, very deep, and it's in all of us.
0: But but tell me do you think does that mean i mean how do you what, what does that tell us about thinking about morality do you think that we still can on a meta level reflect and develop our moral uh, moral instincts so to speak with i, I last week I, I talked to peter singer for example yeah. he has these very strong ideas of how we should develop the the morality in the world, do you think we can do that on a conscious level that is separated from biology?
1: Yes, to a degree, to a degree. But I also think that, I mean, let me me make two points here. And one is that, of course, for most of our history, that is the history of homo sapiens, we lived in hunter-gatherer groups where... Mm. Their size was about 20 to 50 to 80, where everybody knew everybody else, Mm. and where the basics of cooperation and truth-telling and care were quite straightforward. Once you have very large communities, and this really only happened after the advent of agriculture about 10,000 years ago, then you have a whole new range of social problems and a whole new range of ecological conditions that were not part of our evolutionary past. And I think it's principally about those things that we we have to we have to reflect, and so for example, in America, people argue and reflect and think about whether or not it's appropriate uh, to own a, 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 an assault weapon and and to mm. carry it about when you go shopping, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and so there can be disagreements and so forth at, at that level. On the other hand. Uh, With regard to Peter Singer, I tend to be impressed by the fact that um, although he will acknowledge that a certain action would be right, for example, spending less money on his mother as she was dying and giving that money to the poor, he says, that would have been right, but I'm weak. I couldn't do it. And I'm inclined to say, no, 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 no. Why would you think that was right? That's your biology, the deepest part of your biology speaking to you. Mm. Um, And it's the same thing when he reflects on whether it's appropriate to save for college for your own two children rather than to send that money to 20 orphans in Romania. And, you know, it's biologically not on for people to abandon their two children in order to save 20 other children. It can happen, but it's extremely rare. And it's Mm. not because we're weak. It's because we are as we are. And if people in general followed the policy of not caring much about their own children because they were busy caring about other children, in larger numbers, I think we would worry about their morality. I certainly would. Mm. Um, so I think I think morality is much more complicated than Singer thinks that it is.
0: I see. But does that mean that you are not a moral realist? You don't believe in objective mor- moral values at all?
1: Well, yes and no, Um <laughs> I mean, I think that there are certain values that are hardwired into us having to do that, that emerge as a result of the wiring, supporting bonding and attachment. But because conditions can vary across cultures and across conditions, then I think it, it makes sense to simply be aware of the fact that the those values can change. So let me give you a case in point. Essentially, all hunter-gatherer groups and and those who live in larger communities as well think that cannibalism is wrong. So -hmm. let me consider now the Inuit who live in unbelievably harsh communities. And from time to time, the conditions are so harsh that starvation sets in. They cannot get the food they need. And people begin to die and more die. And sometimes people eat the dead. Now, am I horrified by that? Absolutely not. Uh, of course, under extreme conditions, the value of respecting a dead family member has to be modified. Mm. And so they eat the dead and they live to, to produce children the next year.
0: Mm-hmm. so And it's not morally wrong to do that, you mean?
1: I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that there are people who disagree with me about that. Um but I have to say that, you know, if I if I were in a plane that crashed in the far north and sure. it was unlikely that food would be forthcoming and the pilot next to me was dead, but quite edible because it was cold. <laughs> um, I, I think I'd be an idiot not to eat his leg. Mm. Um, but not only that, I think that the forces of survival would be very different from what I now imagine them to be. I mean, one of the things that Peter Singer does is he imagines himself in a certain situation. I think, Oh no, I'd never do that. Well, Charlie, good for you. But you know, have you ever been in such a situation? Um, And when you talk to, for example, the Inuit, uh, They will do, they will tell you stories of things they had to do in order to survive. Mm. Um, so, So, am I a moral realist? Well, I don't even really know what that means, actually. I know that we have these very strong impulses to sociality, that we care strongly about our children, our mates, our family, and to a degree about our friends. And to the degree that you don't know somebody and have never met them, you feel less strongly about them. That's just a fact of biology. Mm.
0: But but um, how how do you? I've been thinking about this myself. I th- find it's extremely hard to understand, for example, how honor culture in certain societies can develop in uh, to the extent that a father kills his daughter because yes. uh, uh, he, she has done something that you know yeah. destroys the honor of the family which means that the impulse, the, the moral instinct to kill the daughter is stronger than the biological instinct to, to, to save your child. I don't understand that, Can, do you? <laughs> no,
1: I, I, I don't understand it either but let me just say this, that so far we've talked about the, the, the instinct to be social Now, building on that instinct from the moment the baby is born are also uh, there is also learning and learning to navigate the social world, to understand what's appropriate and so forth. And that much of that learning comes through imitation, through modeling, but it deeply involves the reward system. So Mm -hmm. you are rewarded for certain kinds of behavior and disapproval discourages you from other kinds of behavior. And to put it sort of crudely, within the nervous system, that involves structures that are lower than the cortex. That is physically, anatomically, they are deeper Mm -hmm. than the cortex. And um, they are not always accessible to conscious thought. And so if you are raised in a culture where dishonor is about the, the worst thing that can happen, then you will probably do things that you or I wouldn't do because it makes no sense to us. We, mm-hmm. Our reward system isn't tuned up in that way. Now, it's important that that there are connections between the striatal structures that have to do with this very complicated social learning, social navigation. There are connections to cortex. And so there can be a back and forth and people can come to change some of those very deep values that that they learned as children, for example. Um, So so in a way, I mean, this is probably too simple, but I think of, of these two parts, the sort of instinctual part and then the learning part as kind of working hand in love. Um, but one provides sort of the motivation to be moral and the other one provides the sort of specifics in a given situation about what constitutes the right thing to do. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I find, you know, things like honor killings extremely harsh. But look, here's it. I mean, when I was a little kid growing up on the farm, we didn't have television, we we had radio, but that was it. But we did get the National Geographic. So I was brought up in, in a relatively, you know, standard Canadian home and I got a copy of the National Geographic and opened it and there were pictures of ladies in in, in the Congo with bare breasts. Mm. And they are just walking about the village. And I was just <laughs> horrified. I couldn't <laughs> imagine such a thing. Now, of course, now, I mean, I completely understand it. It's not a big deal, and I don't think of it as, as wrong or horrifying. Mm. But my reaction was powerful. And so much so that I couldn't even talk to my mother about how this could be. But I was fascinated by these pictures and wondered what on earth could be going on with these people.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, Very interesting. Yeah, that, that's, yeah that's, that's a good example. Uh, you, you write in your book as well about <clears throat> experiments on twins when it comes to, to m- m- moral, moral thinking. Can you tell me a little bit about what you have learned from, from the studies of twins?
1: Yes, the twin studies are quite interesting. Yes, um, this is the the study of identical twins in contrast to to fraternal twins, um, and it rather looks like there are really quite striking similarities in, as we might say, temperament and character, so that. Um, People, twins, both if one is adventurous and a bit of a rule breaker, the other one is likely to be also. And if one is, you know, very conservative and very cautious and um, sort of shows higher levels of anxiety, the other one is likely to as well. And in the context of a specific culture, this may be expressed in very uh, culturally typical ways. Mm. Um and that probably has to do with something we understand not at all well in neuroscience and that is the nature of of temperament. Um and and dispositions to be anxious or to be more sort of uh easygoing and And of course, it varies with age um, as well. But the experiments that were done by Reed Montague's lab with the uh, political scientist John Hibbing kind of bears this out. And they did find certain structures that when an individual was shown a disgusting picture like a picture of worms in the person's mouth. Mm.
2: Um,
1: If they were in the MRI, in in the magnetic resonance scanner, and shown this disgusting picture, individuals would either show in a whole range of regions higher levels of activity or not. And then it turned out that if you showed those higher levels of activity, then on... Your your score on the Wilson Patterson test for political attitudes, you likely were fairly, uh, fairly far to the right. And if you didn't show that kind of activity, you were fairly far to the left. But the thing was, of course, we don't really understand that. That is, no. why are these levels no. higher in these individuals? And we don't know.
0: That's we very fascinating. It
1: has nothing to do with temperament, whatever the heck temperament really is. <laughs> we know there is such a thing because we see it in dogs too. You know, a whole yeah. litter of puppies, and they'll have different temperaments.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, do you think? I mean, there is a lot of talk now these days about psychedelic substances and how that might affect our uh, ability for empathy and so on do you think that first of all what, what what's your opinion on on research on psychedelics and and you know to use psychedelics as a as a treatment against different things and my second question is do if if we find that psychedelics actually affects our uh, moral thinking in a positive way should it be sort of should it be a standard thing that everyone had
1: well, it's an interesting question, and because social behavior is so consequential, I mean it matters to all of us, uh, I would be quite cautious but 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 your the first part of your question is uh, should we be looking at psychedelics such as psilocybin as a treatment. And Mm. of course that research is undergoing and there, there are data indicating that psilocybin is actually a better treatment for intractable depression than, than the available uh, drugs. Yeah. Um, And I find that very interesting. And of course, what we'd really like to know is why what's it doing mm. what's the active ingredient exactly and there certainly is lots of research um, that that is exploring those questions we are
0: just do we're just doing a big study in Sweden in Karolinska Institute in Sweden in Stockholm yeah. on on psilocybin as treatment for for that kind of depression it's yeah. the first time yeah. in Sweden this is happening a, a study like that
1: yes yes so so certainly, psilocybin does seem to be the one that that could could end up being quite interesting. It also turns out that ketamine, which of course sometimes kids use in these you know wild dance parties, <laughs> mm, yeah. um, can also be somewhat effective for uh, as a treatment. Um, but one of the things about ketamine is that it. it can produce a kind of dissociation between what you're perceiving and what your emotions um, are telling you, how the emotions are responding. So you might see something really horrible and feel nothing. Or you might see something really beautiful and feel awful. And so this sort of dissociation is a little bit worrisome. And I think people are looking very carefully at that, and I, um, I, I think this is correct, that there was a paper that Carl Geiseroth was involved in and Joseph Parvizi at Stanford, where they were wondering whether the effects that, that you see under ketamine are a bit like some of the effects you see with schizophrenics, where there can be a dissociation between cognitive response and affective response. But yeah, I mean, the research is really is is really important because, as you know, uh, mental mental conditions and mental disorders are, are tremendously terrible, and it's kind of the one area about the body that where we've made the least progress.
0: Mm, yeah. Uh, uh, let me ask you a little bit about. Consciousness in general. I, I I get the feeling that the philosophy of consciousness is a trend. Is trending a little bit right now in in popular culture. Uh, do you agree? Do you see that happen? <laughs>
1: It probably is. There certainly is. I mean, my mailbox is regularly filled with people who say they've got the answer. You know,
2: <laughs> <laughs> of course,
1: <laughs> and, um, and 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 I I, hmm, I I do see a little bit of progress actually in the really? yeah in in the in the neuroscientific domain. Um, I still remain puzzled by. The idea that whatever is the explanation of conscious experience, this is a view that Chalmers still holds. Whatever is the explanation, it's got to be totally radical. It's got to be unlike anything that we've ever thought of. I'm thinking, how do you know that? Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was learning biology in high school, I had a biology teacher who thought, that livingness itself he was a vitalist all right livingness Mm. itself was so unbelievably remarkable that only a revolution could ever explain how you would get livingness itself out of dead molecules
2: Mm.
1: how could that possibly be well you know the answer turned out to be very complicated, but it has to do with DNA and RNA and ribosomes and uh, membranes on on cellular structures. It was not a revolution. That is, it wasn't a revolution in the way that Newton was a revolution. Mm. It wasn't a revolution. It it. it opened up biology in enormous ways, but it didn't make it didn't introduce a wholly new radical thing. Mm. And people have now quietly shelved the idea that to explain livingness itself, you have to have something absolutely unheard of. You have to change physics. And mm. that's what Chalmers sometimes at least says about consciousness. We have to change physics. Really? Mm. Um And, I mean, I'm kind of a pragmatist. I sort of think, well, people are making interesting kinds of progress, not unlike the progress in discovering the nature of the ribosome and how it makes proteins or discovering the nature of of cellular membranes. And, um, but, you know, the wider public, is often quite charmed by the charisma of David Chalmers and, I must say, of Christoph. I mean, both of them are very charming. Yeah. And, and they think, oh, wow, it's, it's almost like it's a religious thing.
0: Mm, I and, see what you mean. Because one, one of the trending ideas right now, I, I, I perceive, is the panpsychism idea. You know that, yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what, give, me, give, give me your take on panpsychism.
1: It's nuts. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, I mean, it's just nuts. Um, for one thing, it's completely untestable. Mm. And um, the idea that a proton is conscious or a paramecium is conscious. And I say, well, look, like, what does that actually mean? And Christoph yeah. What does say, it
0: explain? What does it explain? What does
1: it explain? And Christoph says, well... It means it has a tiny warm glow, and I'm that off. I mean, really, you know? I mean, what about you know, my, the pile of cow pies outside my barn? I mean, <laughs> you know, a paramecium. <laughs> you know. Anyway, the fact is that it's completely untestable, and these guys are having a wonderful time because they're selling it in the way that vitalism was sold. Yeah. Everything is alive. But it's like saying everything is obese. And I and you might say, but what about these starving individuals who are down to skin and bones? And I say, oh, well, they're just obese in a different way. And that's what Christoph, bless his heart, that's what he says about paramesia. Oh, well, yes, it's conscious in a different way. And I say, well, what way is that? Oh, well, you oh know, it just has this little warm glow. And, I, and, and I'm so reminded of evangelical preachers at this point. I want to say, hey, mm. you know, come on, folks. Um, but they're having a very good time. I'm not sure that it's the best thing in the world to be sort of charismatically um, oh, peddling something that's pretty nutty like that. But on the other hand, you know, it's free speech. <laughs>
0: No, yeah, 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 of course. But but I agree with you very much because it seems like it's trending because it's, you know, it's culturally uh, exciting to, to, yeah, to talk absolutely. about.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And people sell uh, books and lectures on, 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 oh, on that, yeah. so, so to speak. Yeah. But, but but my my main objection is that I, I, I think it has no explanatory power. I mean, no, no, even no, no. if it were some kind of character in the atom, you still have to explain why it appears in a brain, but not in a stone. <laughs> so it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't help.
1: It doesn't help. It doesn't help. And... <laughs> So so yeah, I uh, I think it's kind of regrettable, but you know I think it's like um, some of the the super popular fads right now, like in in a in in the culture in America that they'll have their day and then you know after a while they just get boring and people realize that you know maybe they're a bit silly and and get back to work. <laughs>
0: What 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 ideas are, is that you are thinking of right now?
1: Well, I think the, the I don't know whether this is even very widely held, but the the idea that if you are Caucasian by virtue of your genes, then you are a racist, notwithstanding whatever I, um, behavior you engage in, however many uh friends or mates you have that are black doesn't matter. You are a racist. Um, I think that's unfortunate and because I think for one thing it kind of masks what we should be talking about. It distracts us from things that we can fix. Um and and it it's 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 not wise under mm. under any condition. We have
0: that debate um, yeah. in Sweden as well, you know. And uh, yes, it's it's a big discussion about things like that. And also about the cancel culture that, yeah. that uh, yeah, even yeah. in the academic world that you you can't bring controversial ideas to the table because you no, will no, be canceled. No.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of like there's this religious fervor again, you know, and yeah. uh, I... I I hope I'm not <laughs> disrespecting religion about it. But I mean it is like a uh there is this religious fervor and that uh, mm-hmm. there are some white individuals, for example, who just revel in feeling tremendously guilty mm-hmm. about being white. And uh, you know mm-hmm. sometimes I don't know whether they, they just don't have enough to do or or quite well. <laughs> what the problem is but but it it really does not comport with common sense
0: no uh, you, you probably know that peter singer just started a, a digital journal called journal of controversial ideas mm-hmm. which is an academic uh, internet publication which will be peer-reviewed and, you know, to meet very high academic standards but you can publish your papers and, anon- um, what you call it in English anonymously, I mean, without your name Oh,
1: anonymously, yeah Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, which probably is a good idea, well, it's, it's a good idea because of the cancel culture uh, Unfortunately it, 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 it's, it's needed probably, that's my opinion at least because otherwise these think... ideas wouldn't be, be brought to the table at all
1: that we are we are seeing those ideas brought to the table um -hmm. i mean it kind of depends i guess on on what you read but i do read things from for example the london times or the wall street journal uh which are highly critical of some of these particular cultural enthusiasms
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and um and they get tweeted and retweeted and and so i think But but still, I mean, I think that it's a noble, a noble attempt. Um, Mm. Of course, it's tricky if the authors are anonymous. I understand why that's the policy or why that's an option. Um, But it is a little bit, a little bit tricky because.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, I I think it's a good idea to try these things because it's certainly a, a concern right now. Um,
0: mm. when, it, when it comes to your field of research, do you, do you, do you think there is a lot of controversy among your, your science colleagues on the topics of consciousness and the origins of morality? Is it like an academic fight over this?
1: I, I don't think that with regard to the nature of morality that there is, not within science uh-huh. Um, I don't think so. I don't know what Peter Singer thinks. I don't think he's ever addressed that, that question. Mm. He's, he sort of, you know, uh, has his focus at a different, at a different level. Um, but with regard to consciousness, I think that there are quite a lot of divisions, mm. but, um, having said that one of the really very, um, Scientifically determined attempts has to do with finding ways of testing whether or not a person who's in coma or in vegetative state whether they might recover, and so there are a variety of kinds of strategies to to test that. And just roughly speaking, although many people, and Christoph is one of them, who thinks that the story of consciousness is really a story about cortex, although paramecia don't have that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's long been the view that the thalamus plays a critical role as well. And some of these studies by the clinicians, the neurologists, are indicating that, that the thalamus, especially what's called the central thalamus, also has a critical role and I think that's progress but I I don't think there that this approach is going to yield suddenly the great whole explanation in just the way that for example this discovery of the helical structure of DNA did not explain everything we needed to know about what makes a living thing alive but it was a super important step.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so what do you think, for example, of... What do you think, for example, of uh, Ian McGilchrist and his ideas that he presents in The Master and His Emissary? Do, do you know what I mean, the book? No,
1: I don't. I, I only read some of this stuff because, you know, so much of it is just a mess. But but, but tell me and... and uh, yeah. Well,
0: I'm not sure I, I can, actually, but he, he has this idea that... That the the right uh, uh, um, what what you call it the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere and how how they have different ways to handle reality basically and that that uh, the west the, the the left hemisphere's view of reality is dominating uh, uh, our current times uh, standard of relating to reality. I mean, uh, the the diff- the difference between the left and the right hemisphere in that sense, in perceiving reality.
1: Uh, oh gosh,
0: I always, I, I, do, I, you don't know about his ideas about I this. I mean,
1: I do know quite a lot about the literature from clinicians concerning. Um, lesions to one hemisphere versus mm. another, and there certainly are differences if the right hemisphere is lesioned versus when the left hemisphere is lesioned. But whether that translates into some ge- a general broad picture of the Western paradigm towards life and knowledge versus the East, uh, mm. I you know I, I I I don't think I'm really qualified to assess that mm.
0: okay let me ask you another thing then um i mean this this discussions about <clears throat> the self uh, i mean wh- what is your relation to the concept of the self I, uh, is it like daniel dennett says it doesn't exist it's, it's just an illusion what, what would you say
1: well i think there the that there are many aspects to an animal, and this is not just human, but this is probably many things. There are many aspects to its having a sense of self. So, for example, it it gets feedback from a movement to tell the brain that it was the thing that moved, not something else. Mm. And most animals have a, a fairly rich sense of their body and also how their body can be seen from another So, for example, a friend of mine was recently trying to move elk from domesticated elk from one pasture to another. And the elk just kind of didn't want to be moved. But they had to go Mm -hmm. through an area that had bushes that were about, you know, five feet high or so, sort of sparse. Anyway, they thought they had all the elk through. But of the 70 elk they started with, they only ended up with 24 So where were the others? So they went back to try to find them. So here was one elk. Now, big, big rack, huge animal, 400 pounds, lying down by a bush. And he had carefully positioned his rack into the bush Ah,
2: so that
1: nothing could see the rack. And we know that from chimpanzee studies, too, that an animal, a chimp, will very carefully position itself so it can't be seen by the other that seems to me to be a sense of self there are other components to a sense of self uh like your autobiographical memory and uh um uh, a capacity for various social skills. So Antonio and Hanna DiMasio had a very interesting yes. patient that I visited. Yeah, this is Boswell. And Boswell had lost all autobiographical memory to herpes simplex encephalitis. He only knew that he was born in Iowa. Now there is a philosophical tradition that says that sense of self is entirely constituted by autobiographical memory, but here was Boswell. And you know, he you wouldn't know in the first 40 seconds of meeting him that, that there was anything wrong. He still had great social skills. He was very welcoming. He would comment on, on some aspect of your clothes, for example, and ask, where were you from? And of course, 30 seconds later, you couldn't remember. But um, his social skills were significant. He also could play a really mean game of checkers. Mm. Now, everything was very visible, so he didn't have to remember anything very much, but he could play checkers and he could brush his teeth. I mean, he knew those were his teeth. Mm. So... Those, but you can lose part of that so Boswell, I mean it's not that there was nothing amiss with Boswell he had lost some aspect of our sense of self and it was and we all feel the, the tragedy of that but on the other hand um, there were parts of it that were still parts of it that were still there and there were things that he knew that he liked mm-hmm. he liked to chew gum um and so forth so so i i mean i'm not quite sure why dan Dennett finds it useful to say that's an illusion but i think the more you kind of know about the neuroscience of this Mm. the less you're inclined to think that it's just an illusion it's Mm. a brain construct i guess you might say but
0: what what did you say it's a uh,
1: it's a brain construct it's the way the Mm. brain organizes certain kinds of information in order to help us navigate the world.
0: Hmm. But, okay, but then that, that, that let me ask you a question that the woman I live with asked me to ask you. Oh, okay, <laughs> uh, okay. She she's, she's a novelist. She's writing fiction novels, uh, creative writer or whatever you call it in English. And uh, she tells me that when she sits down with her laptop, she closes her eyes and then she sees a movie screen like here, she says, and she sees scenes happening there and she just writes them down. And sometimes she can say, uh, I think the cameras should be placed there instead of here. So I replace it and I watch the scene again. And um, and then she writes it out. And, she, and she, she asks me to ask you, what? what where is where are these scenes actually taking place? And what is it that sees that? Because that she is, doesn't she doesn't wonderful. feel that she's she doesn't feel that she's inventing this.
1: No, 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 no. I, I I completely understand. And I have a pretty rich visual imagination as well, but not quite as rich as that. And and I have a granddaughter who has an intensely rich auditory imagination. She's a musician. Ah. so 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 where does that really happen probably you know in lots of parts of cortex but also in the hippocampus probably so here's the here here are the data that i find tremendously cool and this has to do with a rat so this is only a clue but i think it's a cool clue so suppose that you, you have a rat and, and it learns a route through a maze to get a goodie. And it's a fairly complicated maze. So it runs a couple of times. It knows now where the goodie is, starting back at, at the starting position, and it's having a little rest. And as you record from its brain, you see that it is rehearsing the successful route through the maze. Mm-hmm. It's as though it's me imagining the successful route through the woods to the chanterelle mushroom patch. Now, um, it's compressed in time so that it happens, although we know what the route looks like when the animal is running the maze and we know the time it takes, when it's, so to speak, rehearsing that route, it's compressed in time. Um, and that's quite interesting and and your your partners um, it'd be interesting to know whether she has time compression for some of what she uh, visually imagines as as well. But, I'll ask her but, I, I don't know. <laughs> but I think the rat story is important because I think it shows us that imagination is not just a trivial thing that we happen to do. I think it's probably really important for lots and lots of things that we learn. We rehearse, we go over, and then we make up new stuff, depending on whatever it is that we're interested in. Hmm. Um, And the capacity to make up totally new things might be unique to primates or maybe even unique to humans. But the capacity for imagination, I think, is in mammals, generally, which is amazing.
0: Very. That's really amazing. Uh, We we will probably never be able to know that, don't you think?
1: Well, except, I mean, the case of the rat suggests that, yeah. But, but, uh, you know, mice, of course, are very different from rats. I'm not sure whether mice... Their bodies are really quite up to it or, or not. But, um, but the fact is, of course, that, that sometimes animals, non-human animals, will do a, solve a problem that makes you wonder if they've been thinking about it. Like the chimpanzee who the first time sees a mirror and, you know, finally gets the fact that that is him. And then he begins to look at his teeth and then he kind of thinks for a while and then he finally turns his bum around and checks his behind. And you think, he's never done this before in front of a mirror. Uh, There, by the way, is a lovely sense of self. He knew that chimpanzee, that when he turned himself around and then examined his behind, that that was his behind.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember Um, that so well when... Uh, my son, who is now 11, I don't think he was born when you were here, actually.
1: I think not. I think that, that he was on the way.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Anyway, anyway, um, uh, I remember that I tested this with him in front oh, of a yeah. mirror when he was really small, and I put something in his on his forehead, yeah. and I, I think he was about one and a half year old when he actually realized it was his own forehead, so he felt his own forehead while while he saw it. Interesting. Uh, So I tested it like every month to see when he would react. That's
1: so interesting. Yes, wonderful.
2: Wonderful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, but But do you think when it comes to animals, do you think that consciousness might have developed independently? I mean, some, some people say that the octopus, for example, has a yeah. consciousness that, that seems to be developed completely independent of human. Yeah.
1: It's a really interesting question. I think it's entirely possible. Mm.
0: Um,
1: yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I mean, I, we know that color vision developed independently many times, at least four or five times. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that, that it's entirely possible. I think stereo vision also, um, developed independently in a number of species. And incidentally, I mean, when you think about stereo vision, so, you know, each eye gets an image and then in, in visual cortex, they're fused, that's a brain construct. You know, when we were talking about the self, mm. I was trying to actually think of another example. But stereo vision is a wonderful example where, mm. of course, it's a brain construct. And we know its evolutionary significance. So, mm. um, so it's not that if it's a brain construct, then it's not real or it's an illusion. Mm. Stereo vision is about as real as it gets.
0: Yeah, I see what you mean. Okay, Patricia, finally, what are you working on right now? What are you researching right now?
1: Well, I I continue to be fascinated by by social neuroscience, and there is so much that is is developing. You know, one of the things we initially thought was that um, oxytocin Uh, was important for things like bonding and attachment and that vasopressin was important for defensive or uh, fearful situations. But we now know that because those two molecules are so similar, they only have nine amino acids and they differ in only two places, they can actually bind to one another's receptors. And it turns out that in certain social situations, and I think the mating game, for example, is one of them. There'll be oxytocin going to oxytocin receptors, but oxytocin will also go to vasopressin receptors, which helps us kind of appreciate the complexity of certain social situations that are both kind of desirable and comfy, but also a little bit concerning and anxiety-producing. And it gives us, I think, a much richer understanding of how complex social life can actually be, mm. so that's one of the things that I that I am very interested in. But the other one also has to do with the fact that although we are very social, we humans are pretty good at band- bonding together and killing other folks,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: um, so that that remains a, a an important issue.
0: Yeah. I mean especially the world today with a, with this very strong polarization going on and uh, yeah. uh, and and a sort of imagination that has went uh, went crazy. I mean all these conspiracy theories for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's really weird and I mean it seems like the more bizarre they are the more uh, sort of engaged uh, are people in believing in them. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I kind of sometimes see a link between that sort of, you know, bizarreness and the bizarreness we see with regard to some theories of consciousness. The more crazy the theory is, (laughs) the more attractive people find it, maybe because it's easy to understand.
2: Uh,
1: And I don't know. But but yeah, I mean the the last election and the and the the post election conspiracy uh, mm. culture has been very very concerning.
0: Um, Do you see a polarization going on among your academic sort of colleagues as well? I mean, are they taking different stands in the in the American politics uh, in a harder way than before?
1: I think many people are very concerned about the council culture and about Mm -hmm. it going too far and needing to make certain kinds of corrections and small steps and important steps to, um, increase equality, but they don't think that, that there needs to be a, a sort of total, um, revamping of the way we do everything um Mm. so so but that you know it may be i mean people will say oh yeah well you live in your own political bubble so you're just talking about people you know well of course yeah i am just talking about people i know but (laughs) uh, (laughs) but i i i i do certainly hear a sensitivity to look this has just gone a bit far um, and the recognition that you do need the police. Um, yes, the police need to have, yeah. but, but you can't have, a uh, have, have a civilized culture in which there are no police, um, yeah. that was tried in part of, of Portland and it really worked out badly. And, uh, so so uh, these things, you know, the pendulum swings one way and then it swings the other way. And so I sense it swinging back to common sense, that people are actually afraid of some of what they're seeing happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. OK, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, anyway, Patricia Churchland, it was wonderful to have you on our post- podcast. Thank you so much. Oh,
1: thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It was a great pleasure. OK, all the best.